It's great to see you this morning as we continue our series focusing on some of the questions that you submitted. But to get into today's lesson, I want to read a, a part of one of Paul's letters. He writes to a church in the city of Rome. And I might remind you that Rome was the seat of power and authority. It touched the thinking of people all across the globe. And so Paul's writing to the church there. And in his letter, we call the book of Romans, he touches on the gospel and a lot of the good news that we celebrate as Jesus followers. But he also says some things that I think will be helpful as we consider today's question. And so I'm going to read, uh, beginning in Romans chapter 1, it's a longer passage. If you want to follow along, uh, you can. I'm going to start the reading with verse 18 and just listen to what the apostle would say to us this morning. He writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Now, that's a key phrase. The, the idea of suppress means they're trying to push the truth down. They're trying to, to hold it down rather than to allow it to affect their lives in the way that God the Creator would desire. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Now, he says this is what's happening. Then he gives an example. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were, now he provides other examples, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, 
inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Once again, Paul is writing a letter to a church that resides in the very seat of power and authority in his day. And he describes the consequence of what happens when a person, or in a larger sense, a society, rejects God, rejects the Creator's wisdom over their lives. He says, now, when a person or a culture rejects God, that you can see from that there will come noticeably negative causes and effects. In his own language, he says when that happens, God gives them up to their desires. Three times in the passage, that's the language the apostle uses. God gives them up. God gives them up. And what's being emphasized is basically this. God allows unrestrained desire to lead to further confusion and self-destructive behavior. See, sometimes when, when we think about God's acting toward the rebellion of mankind, we think he's going he's to judge them by sending a lightning bolt. When what Paul describes is actually something very different, the way God allows them to experience discipline and judgment is he allows them to largely experience the outcome of their own desires. He gives them up to those desires. And so then suddenly they experience the chaos that ensues. They find their lives more confused and complicated rather than blessed as a result of one's relationship with God and the Creator. So why am I reading this passage this morning? Well, as we've been going through the various questions that have been submitted, not surprisingly, several of you asked questions in relationship to issues surrounding homosexuality and gender identity. This is the third time we've done a series on questions, and every single time I ask for questions, every single time someone raises these questions. And I appreciate that because we live in a culture, in a society where there are a lot of competing ideas about what is right and, and what is wrong. Well, I wanted to read what Paul describes in this passage to help us to realize that God has provided a wisdom for our benefit. The creator has a design and a plan. And if you listened, as I read, you probably recognized that to act on same uh, sex attraction, as described in scripture, is then to violate the creator's wisdom and plan. That the Bible teaches that that action is not what he desires for a person. Now, in fairness, let me be very clear in stating this. When you read the Bible in terms of what it teaches about sexuality, it's really rather simple and straightforward. God 
designed mankind to ultimately find their, the ability to express their sexuality within the security of a covenant marriage relationship between a man and a woman. That's how the Bible describes it. Anything contrary to that, the Bible would say, is outside the wisdom's, uh, the, the creator's wisdom and plan. So in many regards in 2019, I think a great, greater number of people are defying the creator's wisdom by pursuing heterosexual activity outside the security of a covenant relationship in marriage, even as compared to those that would be acting upon same-sex attraction. You should realize, the Bible would say, anything outside of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman would be contrary to the Creator's wisdom and plan. Now, our culture will want to argue about the sensibility of that. I'm just trying to explain to you what the Bible consistently teaches. And this is what the Bible teaches. In regard to gender, though, let's stay on this for an additional moment, the two really are related. I mean, if God, in his wisdom as creator, designed mankind in a particular way to express their sexuality in a particular way, then it makes sense what the Bible would teach about gender lines up with that. Just to be simple and clear, what the Bible teaches is basically is that God, um, in his wisdom, created mankind as either male or female. That's how the Bible describes it. Now let me read one example of that biblically, just so that you can allow uh, the testimony of Scripture to inform you. Genesis 1.27, as the Bible describes God's creative activities, listen to what it says in the 27th verse. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is how the Bible presents the concept of gender. You have male and female. When I was a boy growing up, let me be honest, I'm, I guess, revealing a little bit about my age, the idea of biological sex and gender was always presumed to be one and the same. That if you were born biologically a male, then your gender was male. If you were born biologically to be a female, then your gender was female. There, there wasn't at any point a thinking that gender in somehow is detached from one's biological makeup. And I'm sure you're informed enough to know that all of us, when we're born, on a cellular level, it reveals what we biologically are. Our chromosomes uh, reveal that we are either, biologically speaking, male or female. Certainly, in recent years, there's a movement in our nation to try to redefine the understanding of gender, to let it be defined largely by whatever a person strongly feels. And so what they feel about themselves defines what they are in terms of gender. And then from a biological point of view, they know they were biologically born this or that, but from a gender point of view, they could be any number of possibilities. I think currently in Facebook, you have over 50 gender options to choose from if you want to identify yourself in a particular way. What I want you to appreciate from a scriptural point of view is that the Bible describes it rather 
simply that God fashioned mankind as either male or female, and out of that, they found the ability to express their sexuality in a monogamous heterosexual relationship within the covenant of marriage. See, but that's Old Testament. I mean, isn't that just kind of a, an old way of thinking? Well, let me stress, I describe myself as a believer and follower of Jesus. I suspect many of you do the same. And if that's the case, let me take you to what Jesus teaches at this point. Uh, some were trying to pull Jesus into a debate over divorce. And interestingly, in that discussion, he responds, and I want you to listen to his response. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is the one speaking. He answered, verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus goes on to comment, So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Why do I read that passage today? Because there are some people that would suggest, well, Jesus would say, that you can basically feel whatever you feel about your gender or in terms of how you express your sexuality, and Jesus doesn't condemn it. No, Jesus was pulled into a debate about divorce, and in the midst of that, where does Jesus take us? He takes us back to the book of Genesis, reinforcing what the Bible reveals to be not only an understanding of mankind, male, female, but also a very clear explanation of how our sexuality is to be expressed. Now, again, I imagine there might be even a few of you who say, but doesn't the Bible allow for other possibilities? It doesn't. It just doesn't. If you allow the Bible just to be read for what it is, you allow the truth to speak in the way that is clearly stated, it's not confusing. The challenge is, is what we're facing in 2019 is a lot of people who want to do what? They want to suppress the truth. They don't want to acknowledge that the creator had a wisdom and a plan. They would much rather, I guess, chase after whatever their own desires are. Which brings us to, I think, a very significant question to consider. As a believer and follower of Jesus, if I accept the Creator's wisdom and I seek to live my life in accordance with that, how then do I respond to those who reject that wisdom? I mean, all of us, whether you're in school or in the workplace or maybe even in your immediate family, how do you respond to a person who says, I don't accept what the Bible says about my sexuality? I reject that. All right. As a believer and follower of Jesus, how do you respond to them? Well, two things I would highlight with you. First of all, let me stress. In some way, as a follower of Jesus, you need to be willing to speak the truth. You need to be willing to do that. Remember last week we were looking at Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 where he said of his followers that they were intended to be salt and light. That in a beautiful way, we're supposed to be a positive influence in culture. We're supposed to make a, a difference. And I think when it comes to the confusion that we see in 2019 over areas of sexuality, 
I'm convinced part of our response to those who reject God's wisdom is to make sure that we continue to speak about the wisdom of God. We cannot be intimidated into silence. We can't allow that to happen. We need to be willing to speak in a way that can explain what the Bible teaches in regard to the Creator's plan and design. Now that said, let me quickly then add this. As I'm speaking, as a believer and follower of Jesus, I then need to reflect Jesus in what I say and what I do. It's at this point that I am pained to admit a lot of Christians fail miserably with that. Instead of speaking the truth in love, with compassion, desiring to help, we use the truth like a club, and we beat people down in a way that God never intended for us to do. Instead, God desired for us to reflect Jesus in how we engage those that are confused about who God is and the wisdom that God would offer. That Jesus modeled for us how we do that. And if you've read the Gospels, you'll quickly pick up. Those that were really struggling with the wisdom of God were attracted to Jesus because they discerned in him a genuine compassion and love, a kindness that helped them draw close to him. Now, Jesus never condoned the wrongful behavior. He called people out of whatever that action may be, but there was just something about him that allowed him to then affect their lives in that way. I'm saying to us in 2019, as we're wrestling with all of these moral issues, what needs to happen is those who know Jesus need to be sure that they reflect him and what they say and what they do. Now, what do you think that looks like? What do you think that sounds like? Well, let me give you a passage that gives you a little bit of an idea. The Apostle Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, and he's describing how the influence of Jesus through God's Spirit should be seen in your life. And listen to what he says. I'm reading from Galatians 5, verse 22. But, let the, fruit of the, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I got such things. There is no law. See, what I'm wanting you to appreciate is this is what it looks like, sounds like, when you're relating to someone who's rejected the wisdom of God. I mean, one of your questions that you asked, and it was, I think, timely, how should a Christian deal with today's open LGBTQ lifestyle? I would say let the fruit of the Spirit influence how you relate to those that are struggling with the wisdom of God. You should allow the influence of God to be seen, not in simply the fact that you speak the truth, but how you speak the truth, how you relate to the person. Let me give you another passage. If you were with us last Sunday as we were dealing with some political questions Remember what Paul wrote to Titus, and I think it's a helpful passage even given today's topic. In Titus 3, listen to what he says. First of all, he deals with the government uh, relationship. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. 
But then he adds, and this is what I want you to think about as we consider how do I relate to a person who's rejected God's wisdom. He adds, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For, and he explains why, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. To me, this is a very helpful passage as I think about now, how do I relate to a person who right now seems to be rejecting God and his wisdom? Why not reflect these qualities? Speak evil of no one. Be courteous to all. Gentle relating to them in a way that would allow God to be seen and how you relate to them? And what would motivate us to do that? Because we know what we've received through Jesus Christ. We know how our lives have been touched by the mercy of Christ. And consequently, rather than attacking a person who presently seems to be rejecting the wisdom of God, we engage the person, speaking the truth, yes, but we do so with a level of kindness and gentleness and thoughtfulness and concern that disarms them. I would suggest to us that that's how we respond. Now, someone was asking a question with related to the local school district. Let me bring that to your attention the person asked, my school district is entering a phase of diversity education that is going to include gender identity and homosexuality. As a Christian employee, how do I respond to being asked to support slash teach this? Now, that's a complicated question, but can I just make a quick observation? First, if the school district is asking you to teach rather to treat everyone and to relate to everyone with dignity and respect, with kindness and concern. You shouldn't have to have the school district ask you to do that. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we should already be doing that, right? That's not outside of what Jesus would ask us to do. And even if your curriculum is encouraging the students to show that level of respect and dignity toward people that will be different than who they are. Again, I think you can teach that and encourage that. Jesus would model that for us. Now, if the school district is asking you to now personally endorse some lifestyle that is contrary to what God teaches to be his wisdom, then I would recommend you talk with your school district about some clarification at that point. Ask them now, okay, are you asking me to endorse a lifestyle? And if you're asking me to do that, then I'm going to ask for permission to, to add a disclaimer. Uh, if, if I have to say the culture today says, I want to also then to be able to add, but not everyone agrees. Uh, I would seek in a dialogue with your district to understand what's being asked of you. And I trust, even in the Metroplex in 2019, the school districts are appreciative enough of the convictions of faith that make up so many of their teachers that they're not going to impose 
you to actually now endorse something that would be contrary to what you would understand the wisdom of God to be. But if all they're asking you to do is to promote a mutual respect and dignity and understanding of people that are different from you, I think Jesus would ask you to do that, quite honestly. Because as we think about it, what Jesus would say as we engage those that are struggling with the wisdom of God is that we need to reflect his influence in what we say and what we do. Now, let me recommend a book that I, if, if you have a, a family member, a friend, a co-worker that's struggling with the wisdom of God in some area of their life, there's a book uh, written by Caleb Kaltenbach entitled Messy Grace. I strongly recommend this book to you. Now, just to give you a, a moment, a little bit of an understanding of why, um, Caleb's, both of his parents at a later point in time came out publicly to be gay before Caleb came to faith in Jesus Christ. And then Caleb comes to trust in Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior. And you can imagine uh, how that created a very interesting dynamic as he began to relate to his parents and even began to say to them, you know, I accept the wisdom of God and what the Bible says about sexuality. In his book, he emphasizes how, as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, we stand for what is true, but we're living in a spirit of grace. We are looking to extend compassion and kindness and goodness toward the people around us. Uh, he highlights, I think appropriately so, what was said of Jesus in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1 and, and verse 14, where it was said of Jesus, and the word became flesh and dwelt, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full notice of grace and truth. His appeal and my appeal to us, as we respond to those that are struggling with the wisdom of God, we come into that seeking to find the appropriate balance of grace and truth. We do need to lift up the wisdom of God, but we also express consistently the grace of God, the compassion of God. I'm pleased to go on to say that as a result of his journey of faith, the time came when he was able to leave both his dad and his mom to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And out of that, they begin to look at their lifestyle differently. But see, if we want to affect how a, a person views their behavior, we need to be sure that what we want to do first and foremost is to lead them to a personal faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the one that then begins to influence our understanding of behavior and then gives us the ability to, to follow in that understanding. But uh, this would be a helpful book if you have someone that you love and respect and care about, and yet they're struggling with some part of the wisdom of God, whether it's their sexuality or some other area of their life. I think Messy Grace would be a helpful book for you. And so how do we respond to those that are struggling? We try to reflect Jesus as we speak the truth, right? We try to reflect Jesus and how we relate to them. Which brings me to a final 
emphasis, and I'll be quick with it, but I think it needs to be emphasized. How about this? How do we respond when it's not someone else that's struggling with the wisdom of God? How do we respond when our desires are outside of God's wisdom? Now, I'm pretty sure of this. Every single one of us in this room today has some area where we have a desire that is contrary to the wisdom of God. So how do we respond to that? Now, I emphasize that in regard to today's topic because someone asked a rather pointed question. Let me read it for you. Currently, most churches believe that being homosexual in and of itself is not wrong, but committing homosexual acts is. Does this mean that a homosexual person needs to be celibate for their entire life? Considering how strong sexual desires can be at times, that seems quite difficult, putting it lightly. As a side note, conversion therapy has been banned in most places, the spirit of what was being said. The question is, is can Jesus really affect our desires, make a difference in our lives for the better? And the good news of the gospel is Jesus can. Now, I mentioned one book. Let me mention another because today's topic, how can I handle that in 30 or 40 minutes sufficiently? If you struggle with desires that you know are completely outside of the wisdom of the creator, whether they're sexual or some other, let me mention this book because I think his approach is very insightful. It's a book entitled Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. The author's name is Christopher Yuan. Now, let me tell you his story. Early in his life, he came out and embraced the gay lifestyle completely and allowed that to kind of dictate his life. And then, as he admits, over a series of, of, of time or a period of time, he found himself in a horrible place. His mom, who had not been a believer in Jesus while he was a child, did come to faith in Jesus Christ. And she began to pray for him and to love him and to relate to him in a way that caused him to think about Jesus Christ and what Jesus promises and what Jesus claimed. So much so that Christopher came to a point where he trusted in Jesus Christ. What happened with him? Did his same-sex attraction desires just disappear? No, they didn't. You know what happened? He discovered that his relationship with Jesus Christ was such that he found greater fullness in life in relating to Jesus, asking Jesus to accomplish in and through him what was needed in his life, that he realized he would much rather experience the fullness of Jesus day by day than to be dominated by some desire. He realized that Jesus was able to affect his life for the better. And as we think about the desires that we have that are outside the wisdom of God, you need to realize, and I hope you would confess, that, you, that Jesus can make a difference if you would let him. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and that group of believers had all sorts of problems, some of which sexual were sexual in nature. Listen to what he writes to them, and I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 9. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's a statement you need to know. 
If you're a sinner, and all of us are, then we will not inherit the kingdom of God unless we are saved from that. Unless we experience the forgiveness and the hope and the life that comes with Jesus. And and yet Paul goes on to say, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. See, the judgment of sin is real. But notice what Paul then adds, verse 11. And such were some of you. Now notice the verb is past tense. He's pointing to how their lives had previously been dominated by all of these various desires. He says, that's who you were. But Paul continued, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our our God. In other words, Jesus began to affect your life for the better and you know it. That's the lesson I would appeal to to us to to keep in view, that Jesus came so that he can help us deal with all of our desires that are outside of the wisdom of God. For that to happen, though, we have to recognize we desire Jesus to be active in our lives, and we begin to relate to him accordingly. So, well, my desires are strong. Well, let me take you to what Paul said to the church in Rome and listen to what he says beginning in verse 12 of Romans chapter 6. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin, Paul adds, will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. That Jesus can affect your life, actively influence your life, so that you discover in him an ability to walk in the light and to live in fellowship with him and to experience the fullness of that. Now, does that mean there will be instances where you'll say no to your previous desires? Yes. That's what he's asking you to do. Stop presenting your members toward that desire. But to renew what Jesus has made possible for you day by day. Later in the same letter, Paul expresses it this way, Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, there the emphasis on living isn't a contrast between being physically alive or physically dead. It's a spiritual emphasis. See, because of your faith in Jesus, you're spiritually alive. And so you present yourself as a living sacrifice. That's what Jesus did for you. Holy and acceptable to God. That's what Jesus did for you, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed in the renewal of your mind. That by that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
I guess what I'm trying to say is when you're struggling with the desire that is outside of the wisdom of God, what you want to do is focus on the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ. Recognize that he desires to direct into your life a power, a grace that will affect who you are inwardly so that you discover fullness in life even in the midst of those desires. Will it eradicate the wayward desire? Probably not. It will still have an occasion to kind of pull you in that direction again. But the exciting message of the gospel is as we relate to Jesus for who he is, he affects our hearts and our lives in such a way where we are no longer dominated by the desires but rather walking daily in fellowship with him, the one who sets us free in that way. So whatever your desire may be, again, this is a very helpful book. You say, I'm just not a reader. Well, look up Messy Grace or look up Holy Sexuality in the Gospel. Both of these authors have video uh, lessons where they've talked about their journey and allow their testimonies to move you toward hope. Because the good news of Jesus is he absolutely has the ability to affect our lives for the better if we'd only let him. Final comment, Christopher Yuan grieves that so many people choose to allow their lives to be defined by their desires rather than to be defined by the relationship that they have with Jesus Christ. He's actually a professor at Moody College, and he teaches students not so much to pursue, quote-unquote, a heterosexual sexuality. He wants them to pursue a holy sexuality. That first and foremost, what they're seeking to do is to step forward according to the wisdom of God, regardless of what the desires that they have may be so that they're experience, actively experiencing the goodness and the love and the hope that Jesus offers. Now, if my response to these questions have raised further questions, as I've said throughout the series, would you just email me, call me? Let's just sit down and talk. Let's visit about it. But let's take heart. Because of Jesus Christ, we do have a wisdom to know how to navigate even questions like these if we'll affirm the Creator's wisdom for our lives. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for the attentiveness of those that are here today. I know the topic, by the very nature of it, in our day today is a very controversial one. I imagine some outside the church might even describe what I have taught today as hateful. But I hope instead that what we've come to realize is our desire is just to relate to you as God, to affirm the wisdom that you offer, to, through Jesus your Son, experience life that will transform who we are, moving us forward in ways that allow us to experience even more of your presence and grace. So Lord, if we're relating to someone who's struggling with your wisdom, or whether it's a struggle that we have within ourselves, I pray today that we would affirm Jesus in a fresh way, seek Jesus in a fresh way to affect our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name.
Amen. I ask you to stand.